Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And we have just wrapped up our fall season of debates, the fall season of our 13th year. We're at 170-something debates at this point, which amazes me. Um, this season, we took on a number of really interesting issues. We looked at U.S. policy in the Middle East. We debated Medicare for all. Uh, regulations of big tech. We debated parenting. We debated capitalism. And there were fantastic debates, and you can find them all right now in your podcast feed, the same feed in which you're listening to this podcast. Uh, this podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be a debate. It's because our team is gearing up for next season as I speak. We're launching in January. But this week, we're going to do something we have never done before, and we're going to pull back the curtain on Intelligence Squared U.S., a lot of times over the years, um, I've been asked by, by you, our listeners, and by people at the debates, how do you pull it all together? How do these debates come together? How do you pick your topics? How do you pick your debaters? And we've decided today to answer some of these questions, but I'm not going to do it alone because joining me is our CEO, Clea Connor Chang. She is CEO of Intelligence Squared US, and we're going to be talking about what happens off the stage and how it is that we get to get two teams of two ready to battle out over one resolution, where civil discourse, we hope, always wins. So, Claire, welcome to the Intelligence Squared U.S. podcast. <laughs> Thank you, John. So I, I think um, I think you're going to be interviewing me. I think who yeah, who interviews a, whom? We're having a role reversal. Okay. <laughs> so I normally don't come out of the shadows, so this is exciting for me to actually sit and talk with you and talk to our audience as well. But first, let's learn a little bit more about you. Oh. So uh, this is your second stint at Intelligence Squared. Yeah, it's my, my second tour. Tell us who you are, where you came from, what else you've done. Uh, well, before Intelligence Squared, I worked uh, with a lot of different best-selling authors and journalists and public officials on their speaking engagements and their lecture tours through a greater talent network. And that's actually how I came to Intelligence Squared. Um, I have a background in marketing and media as well, mm -hmm. but attended a first Intelligence Squared debate, um, was representing PJ O'Rourke, oh, who wow. has debated with us several times. Yeah. Um, you know, behind the scenes, I was PJ's Twitter feed and was very excited to see him live at this event mm -hmm. and didn't know about Intelligence Squared at the time. So that's in, I think, around 2010. Mm -hmm. And uh, attended a debate, fell in love with the format. You liked it. You had a good impression yeah, I, right I had away. Not, I'd never seen anything quite like it. Yeah. Because there really isn't another, you know, uh, media organization out there that's bringing two sides together to really hear opposing points of view. It's the the fact that that's a novel concept is kind of shocking. And that we make it kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mean fun, haha, -ha fun. Sometimes it is, but I mean, in the sense, it's very, it's actually very engaging. It's very, it's entertaining from an intellectual point of view and several other points of view. But it's, it's really, it really draws you in. It's amazing how often you hear actually from a, our live audience. They say, "Wow, I didn't expect to walk away from that having had so much fun or mm -hmm. having learned so much, and certainly not changing my mind." Right. You right. know, and that was the experience I had. And when I walked away from that, I said, how do I get involved with this? This is just really cool. Did some research and saw that Intelligence Squared had a director of marketing position, you know, open. So that's where I started out at Intelligence Squared. And um, that was about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I took a sabbatical, so to speak, for about a year and a half and have been serving on our board of trustees while I worked with some other companies um, and have, you know, recently come back to, as our first CEO. I'm really excited Congratulations. about it. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So you got to believe if you come back as yeah. CEO. <laughs> That's right. 
Okay, you wanted to ask me some questions. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's get started. I wanted to ask you, um, so this behind the scenes of Intelligence Squared, it's also the question I think all of us get um, on the team. You know, how do you put these together? How do they come together? How do you choose topics? There's a whole lot of questions. So we thought we'd start just by going behind the scenes and meeting our host and moderator, John Donvan. So you've moderated more than 160 debates. Yeah. Is that right? Hard to believe. More than yes. a decade. Yeah. Um, what brought you to Intelligence Squared? Um, when Intelligence Squared was founded by Robert Rosencrantz, who still is our leader, he brought on board to start the whole thing up from scratch, a colleague of mine from my days at ABC News named Dana Wolf. And Dana... Um, for the first two seasons, Dana and Bob put on debates where every time there was a different moderator, there was sort of a new, different celebrity moderator. People like Robert Siegel of NPR and Bob Costas of NBC, um, you know, names that of people that you would know. And I, I, I learned that she was using different people to moderate, and I called her up and said, Dana, I would love to be Get, get into your rotation to be one of your moderators. And she said, we'll see, we'll see. And then some months went by and I called her up again and said, I'm still interested in moderating some debates. And she said, we'll see, we'll see. Mm -hmm. And um, one day she called me up and said, would you be interested in moderating not just one debate, but all of them? And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, we have found that when we put on these debates, every single time we have to teach the moderator the whole format and how to moderate and what we're about. And we just decided it would be better to have somebody who starts with us and keeps going and grows in the, to the position and learns how to do it. And we come together and you've been bugging me a lot. So I think you would probably really be interested in it. Had you moderated a debate already? No. No? No. Wow. The That's other thing way. she did on the first debate, <laughs> I had to speak to her after this, but on the first debate, and this is something that producers do everywhere. But she had me get there three hours early just just to have everything in position. And I showed up three hours early, and I, w I was exhausted by the time the debate started from the pacing and the nervousness and the awful small talk at which I'm terrible. And I just said to her after that, I, 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 I've got to show up on a much shorter time frame, like when there's really something for me to do. So that was my, my memory of the first debate was actually being really terrified and... Um, and we had a different format at that time. We had three three against three rather than two against two. Way more complicated to yeah, do. It's a lot of order voices. of magnitude mm -hmm. uh, more complicated to do three three against three. So, but I got through it, and um, and um, by the end of that first season of five or six debates, I had started to get the pattern down, and I and I just I gave a lot of thought over the years to how to moderate. I've I've amended what I do. Mm. Um, I used to be much more, you know, I'm just going to keep time. I'm going to introduce the questions. I'm going to stay out of it. And then I remember coming to a point where I sat down with Bob and um, and Dana and said, I, I think that as a moderator, I should be much more, I should start to be much more active as a referee, by which I mean not just keeping time, but inserting myself to keep people on topic and to keep people from making personal attacks. Uh, the point being not just that it's more civil to not make personal attacks, but a personal attack is not really an argument, and it was affecting the quality of the arguments. And and then I said, and, and I and I want to start actually organizing through my questions. I want to start looking for points of contention and 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 proposing, bringing them together, rather than just general open questions. Mm -hmm. And to kind of call people out when their arguments were weak, which mm -hmm. I I don't do a ton of, but I started to do that a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was a very big evolution for me. So I'm a very different moderator than I was at the beginning. Hmm. Much better, I would say. Oh, we think so. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, there's something that audience members always mention to me um, after a debate. They say, does John do the summary on his own? So, you know, both teams have now at this point in the debate, they've done their opening remarks. And if we're watching you, you're off camera. But if you're at the live event, you can see John. You're sitting there and you're you're writing down notes very quickly. Mm-hmm. And oh, listening to what they're saying. Listening mean. to what they're saying. And then at the end of round one, you summarize what we just heard. And it's so succinct and it's so like on on target. And it really helps just give everybody just crystallizes what these two sides were. How do you do that? I, I, I don't do it ahead of time. Um, I listen really, really closely. And it's an interesting thing for me is that um, I, I'm, I'm terrified at the start of every debate and all the way through it until it's time to take the final vote. That makes two of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Always. Um, I, I'm really concerned about things going off the rails while I'm on the stage moderating and supposedly, you know, orchestrating the, the moving parts. And, and I've decided that it was even just instinctive that the one way I could stay in it and stay on top of it is to listen extremely closely. It, I, I put the highest, highest priority on listening to what the debaters are saying and making sure that I understand them. And so my mind is racing, you know, it's going on 110% listening to what they're saying and calculating, is this a valid argument? By the time I'm done that, they've moved on to another point. I'm catching up with that. But uh, what I've learned to do is to just listen really, really, really closely, and I f- everything else becomes, during their opening statements, tertiary to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't script it because I feel if I were to script it ahead of time, I wouldn't listen so closely. It's, it's a thing that I, sometimes I do. I teach um, young journalism students about interviewing. And I've, I coach them not to go into interviews with a list of questions written down. Mm. Well, uh, it's really always amazing. And, I, and this I've, makes... I'm very critical of every time of my... Th- I could have done that a lot better. Oh, but thank you. I, no. I'll take the compliment. <laughs> um, and so in a debate, because I myself now have been uh, with Intelligence Squared eight years, have, have produced almost 100, maybe over 100 of these. I have to go actually do some math. Um, but with that in mind... What is your biggest fear after you you just summarize these two arguments? Now you're going to hear from the two sides really dig in to those those very kind of surface level arguments. We're going to go deeper. What's your biggest fear at that point as the moderator? Um, that it will go off the rails in a number of ways, and one of the one of the immediate ways would be if I ask a question. I start I start every again just for people who may need a little refresher. We have opening statements. I listen to them. That takes about 20 minutes because four people get six minutes each. That adds up to 24 minutes. Sorry. And then, and then, and then, and then we take a, a very, very short 30 second break. I, I, I summarize what they've said. That's what we were just talking about. And then we have a freewheeling conversation for the next 40 minutes led by questions for me. And then we go to questions from the audience. And um, my big fear is uh, it's a fear that I've missed the point. In my opening question, mm. um, it's a fear that my question to them will cause the discussion to go down a rabbit hole um, that's off the point again. And what I mean is by on the point is um, whatever topic we take on, there's there's a there's always sort of a consensus in the room about 
what's at stake in the argument and why we're doing it and why we're doing it now. And, and Bob Rosencrantz and I talk about some of this on stage. It's We're doing it because of this. And and sometimes I get my fear is that my question will cause the first person to speak to take the conversation off in some really unrelated direction, some sort of hobby horse issue, and and take too long doing it and not be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's compound. That's followed up by the fear that even if the first person gets it right, what we want to have is a debate. We really want to hear the ideas clash. And if I've asked the f- person on side A. A question, and he or she has answered it in in a minute nicely. And I, I what I then want to have happen is f- when I go to side B, is for side B to engage in what that person just said, to engage the argument that was made. And I have the big fear always that the the other side is just going to have a talking point that they're going to stick to. They're not going to hear the question. They they will not have listened to what the other person said. And that those things have happened. And. That's where I started to become more interventionist. Is I will once I realize that somebody's talking, I'll interrupt them and say, "You know, that's all very well, John." I, and I really don't try to be a jerk about it. I try to be very respectful. But I say, "John, can I break in for a moment?" You're, I, I understand what you're saying, but 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 your opponent just left a really powerful point out there. And what I try to do then to sort of prod them to to respond is, and it was very persuasive to this audience. I let them know that, and I mean it too, that your opponents have just made a point that really demands response. And if you don't respond, you're not going to win the debate. So I try to prod them back with a little phrase like that to get them focused on on what the opponent has said. So my biggest fear is that the that the 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 inter, that the arguments won't interweave and intertwine and touch each other directly. And and in no debate is it perfect. I mean, it's hard with four people to get them all to stay in the same house mm-hmm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. Some will wander out into the backyard and some will go upstairs to the attic and some will go watch TV in the this is all metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to keep them all in the same house and debating on the same issue. And my concern is that they won't. I sometimes have a con- you know, concerns that a debater will just be very weak, mm-hmm. not present a powerful argument. We don't want to have any really one-sided mm-hmm. evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, th- again, we're very good about who we put on the stage. That rarely, rarely happens. Well, and part of that is actually how is a little bit behind the scenes of how you prep them. Yeah. So we do have like a, a call with each side. Mm-hmm. And during that call you kind of set these expectations. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, I go through the format. We we've dis- we decided a long time ago not to do all four debaters on one call. So we do two calls with one team and then we do another call. We do one call with one team and then one call with the other team. And we tell them the same thing. We work through the format, but we give them a few uh not tips on the substance at all, but tips on the shape of how to shape the argument. Um so that they're they really are doing the thing that we need them to be doing, which is to be making is trying to prove or disprove the resolution. That's their go- that's their goal on the night. I say the last thing you should do when you're doing your opening statement of six minutes before you sit down is ask for the audience to vote for your side, because that will signal two things: that you're there to win, and they like to see that you're actually com- you're there to compete with the opponents. So you if you weren't you wouldn't be asking for their vote if you if it didn't you it, it shows that it matters that mm-hmm. you care and that you know that you have to defeat the other guys and that you've been addressing the other guys that way implicitly and the other thing is if you say that just before you finish your statement and sit down you're telling the audience i just gave you all these great reasons to vote for that side so that's one specific 
that's one specific that we give to the audience. And I, I also warn them, and I think this is really important, the, the two key aspects for me of being a moderator of these debates, the first one I've said is listening. The other one is knowing how to interrupt. It's a very, very delicate issue. Um, is, is breaking in on somebody. Um, it, can, it can seem disrespectful. There are all kinds of optical problems depending on who I am and who they are. And, um, but if I don't interrupt, and I learned this in the early debates, I felt I should, I should just let people have their say. Um, I, I needed to learn to interrupt for time. And then there's also interrupt for your, your going off point. Mm -hmm. There's interrupt for your being repetitive and we don't have time. And it's very easy to, by the way, I, I, I want to say, I think it's terrifying to debate. And I think I have so much respect for every single debater who's ever gotten up on our stage and been willing to lose in front of an audience. So I respect this, the stress that they're under. Mm -hmm. What are your go-to? I mean, if I were going to actually have some news I could use in my life, and I'm listening to this podcast. What are some of the phrases that you use to just gently interrupt and move the conversation on? Um, you know, if you were talking and also, by the way, you're not looking at me. Ideally, you're looking out at the audience. Mm -hmm. So and, I, and you know, right. I'm not even in your line of sight because mm -hmm. I'm standing slightly. And I'm in the middle, but you're a little bit downstage for me. So it's even more awkward. So you're going to just hear me. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if, if you first of all, I would look for a pause. I, and I and I would try to do a very non-confrontational. Clay, can I can I just break in for? Excuse me, can I break in for one second? I would do it that way, um, and you you would be caught off guard. I, I mean, that's what I see is the the debaters are caught off guard, and I feel terrible about that. And then I, and then they'll look at me like, sorry, I'm sorry for that. But and then I want them to stop talking. I do want to go to the other side. I don't yeah. want to hear from them yeah. anymore. And I'll say, I'm I'm sorry for that. But you just made some. A really powerful point there, and a couple of them, and and we got to give your opponents a chance to respond. Is that okay? You know, I do it that way. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I solicit their uh, goodwill cooperation, but I also tend to compliment them on what where they are, so that it doesn't seem so so rough. And and, and, and you've kind of prepared them for that too. I've right? told them ahead of yeah. time. I've asked for their permission to interrupt. I I've said to them ahead of time on the phone calls that we have and then mm -hmm. on the night that they all come to the debate I remind them one more time I'm, I tell them I, 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 want, I just want your permission to interrupt you and, and the reason is that we need to keep it moving back and forth are you all okay with that and everybody always says mm -hmm. okay and then I also say but don't let me interrupt if you are like 30 se uh, 15 seconds away from nailing a fantastic point and I'm destroying your moment. I don't obviously don't want to be destroying great argumentation. But if you were really close to wrapping something fantastic, ask me for the time. Just say, just say, John, I need a, just give me a few more seconds here, and I'll understand that's what you're doing. And of course, I'll give you the time back. And that's mm -hmm. that has mm -hmm. worked. Um, mm -hmm. People have debaters have taken advantage of that opportunity. And and in my experience so far, they don't do it frivolously. When they ask for a little more time, it's because they really do have something mm -hmm. interesting to say. Mm -hmm. And then, and then speaking of the audience Q&A. Yeah, I, that's very complicated also um, because, again, <laughs> I, I am enormously <laughs> grateful that an audience of hundreds of people comes to our debates and that they listen and that they consider and reflect and they vote and that they're curious and that they want to ask questions. To raise your hand to ask a question, I think, takes a lot of guts. So I respect everybody who gets up to ask a question, including the many... I have had to turn away <laughs> from the microphone because so, I have had to turn down a lot of questions. Yeah. And, and here's the, there are two reasons. One is that we're in a, we, we have a very 
tightly scheduled show. We want to finish on time. Mm. We also have an aspiration. We, we try to set up a 20-minute period of that back-and-forth section to be devoted to audience questions. And let's say it's uh, seven questions. So that's three minutes per per question. And with each question, we also don't we don't want it. we want to hear the question and then we want to hear one side respond to it and then we want to hear the other side respond to it and then maybe we want to have one more round if it's a really good question and it's prompted a really good debate mm-hmm. we might mm-hmm. want to have one more round from the debaters mm-hmm. so we want to hear from them again and then one more time and so we really can't lose time with a question that's not going to work and by work i mean is it going to get these debaters to to argue even at a better level than they have been already, in a new area that we haven't explored already, that's still on the topic. Mm-hmm. That's a hard. That's a high assignment to, as a question. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people don't know how to really wrap a question. It's very easy this one to spot. Some people will want to get up and they want to argue with one of the debaters. They just want to argue. You said blah blah blah, and you know that's. And I just cut that off. Mm-hmm. And I do it again. I hope in a way where I'm not being a jerk or alienating that individual or the audience by just trying to lightly say, sorry, sir, I, nobody gets to debate with the debaters. I'm, I'll make light of it and and pass on. But before doing so, I will check. I'll say, do you, do you really have a question? Do you, do, you, do you really have something that you can ask there? Mm-hmm. And at least half the time, the person can put something together. And And then there's another version of the person who says stands up and says i have two questions and that immediately i just say pick one because we can't (laughs) do two questions i get that a third variation is i'd like to hear each of the debaters tell us what they think about da 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 da. i pass on that usually in that format because i don't want to have a mechanical roll call of each debater and by the way to hear them all express their opinion on something is not them debating about something it's them answering a an interview question so they're not debating so i pass on that question um, and then the, we might be doing a debate about Lyft, and somebody might have gotten up and said their question might be, you know, in the end, are we just putting too many cars on the road because he's driving? That might be the question. But the person will go, will stand up and say, you know, I came here today in a Lyft, and my friend came in a Lyft, and I was in a Lyft yesterday, and the driver told me that he, all of his friends are driving Lyfts. If the person stopped at that point and said, are we putting too many lift cars on the road? I would find that a pretty good question. They gave a little illustration of what they were talking about. I'm trying to get it compressed, and I'm trying to make sure it's on point, and we'll get them to debate. Yeah, actually advance the debate. Yeah, definitely advance the debate. And so so that's what's going through my mind with the questions. And it's an interesting thing is I hate doing it. I hate, you know, it, it, it it feels like... Like you're silencing somebody to mm. to pass on a question, and and a, and I guess in a literal sense that I am, but I'm explaining. I always explain to the audience why I'm passing on a question. Sometimes only in sentence, but I explain it. And at the end of the evening, I thank all of the people who got up and asked questions that we didn't take, just to show them the respect. But it's it's not. It's just never comfortable for me to shut somebody down. The odd thing is. I think some of the audience loves to see me do it. They love it. It's like the Coliseum. It's terrible. That's terrible. That's terrible. Come off stage and I'll talk with some people in the audience and go, oh, that was so great how you shut that guy down. I said, but that was terrible. He must feel awful. No, he was a windbag. You should have. And I, I, I would never say that any of our audience members are windbags. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. 
So you, our podcast listeners, have probably caught on. But John, you don't read ads for the show. Not anymore. I, I did a few Explain in the beginning. What, yeah, why not? I was, re- I, I was uncomfortable with it. Um, and I, it's, it's, I'm old school. Um, and I came up uh, in journalism at a time when it's interesting. We, um, I worked for ABC News. And uh, we had such a, a long book of practices and um, ethics requirements. We had to know the whole book. There are all kinds of restrictions on the things that we can do. Um, you know, I can't, I say I can't, I still have the impel, impact, uh, the, the, um, the impulse. I can't contribute to a political campaign. I can't wear a campaign button for one person or another. I have to be very careful what I say in public about uh, controversial topics or controversial individuals. And uh, and I, I know there I know there is, and I respect a whole argument that objectivity is nonsense, and I kind of believe that. But that I think that's different from just re- being discreet about who you are and what you believe, so that you can, uh, t- to the maximum extent possible, be a an honest broker between opposing points of view to the maximum extent that you can. And um, one of the things that we couldn't do was endorse a commercial product. And it was interesting. We used to look back in when I was working in the field in the '90s. We we found some old footage of newscasts from the from the '50s, and you saw like Mike Wallace, who was a great journalist on 60 Minutes in the '50s. He's doing an interview on CBS, and then all of a sudden we'll be right back after this. And then suddenly he's lighting up a cigarette, and he's smoking the cigarette, and he's talking about the cigarette, who was the sponsor of the show, and and it was oh my. God, Mike Wallace is like hawking cigarettes on a newscast, I mean, on an interview show that's so wrong. And I still have that impulse in me that it's so wrong. Um, and so I, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. And, and the problem I have is that um, I feel that the sponsors want to capitalize on the credibility that I bring to the program by having me say something nice about their product. Well, I'm somebody who can't be bought, so it must really be true that the product is good, but they just got me to say that by buying me to say that. So mm-hmm. I just feel like I can't do it. And then the, the last thing is, I just don't know that I I can't verify the claims of the products. Yeah. I mean, there there was a financial one yeah, once that. where, yeah. you know, you're guaranteed a certain return. You can't guarantee a certain return. And then there's questions like, how are these things manufactured? Mm-hmm. Um, how are, how, you know, there, scandal might erupt over any product at any time. Um, and 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 if I'm out there having said it's a fantastic product, I would just feel that um, I compromised what we're doing. And 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 there's a difference between what we're doing and other most other podcasts. That's right, because it's more of a brand. You know, this is. But it's also it's also how we've positioned our brand that we are going to be honest brokers between two sides of an argument. Mm-hmm. We're much closer to journalism mm-hmm. than than, say, Pod Save America. I mean, pods that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I noticed on one of my favorite podcasts is The Daily from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Michael Barbaro never does a host read, ever. Mm-hmm. They have spots, they have commercials, but they're done by other voices. Mm-hmm. So I think that's reflecting the New York Times b- being old school about that because it's doing journalism. But if you're doing, like, a serial kind of podcast, you know, mystery show, that's a completely different thing. And if yeah. I were doing that, I wouldn't have as much problem with it. But I feel that this is too close to the traditions of, of journalism. Um, one of the things I've learned a lot from you 
on over the years is uh, when we're doing these prep calls with these debaters and we're coming up to the the section that's really about the closing remarks. Mm-hmm. Share with us what your advice is for them. Including the, the anecdote. Your favorite example. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a new one. <laughs> Because we've been sharing. So what I do is I, I, I talk to them about the closing. The closings are two minutes each. And um, so they, they go by quite quickly. And, and also when the closing moment comes, there really is a sense that they're only going to be up there for two minutes and we're wrapping up or we're going to vote. There's a momentum that's building at this moment because of the pacing and the emotion in the room and, and, and the weariness of the, of the debaters. They've been boxing now for an hour and a half. So these two-minute closings... I think are really kind of a dramatic moment. And um, and so what I say when I'm coaching the debaters on the format and the shape is you can, we, we I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I think that we do get a lot of audience members who change their minds on an argument. They, they're surprised by it. I think they're actually delighted by the experience of having their minds changed. Yeah. But, and so... By the end of the evening, after the first round of opening statements and then this 40-minute section of robust conversation, there are people who are now wavering. There are people on the fence who who, who maybe are going to change their minds, but it's hard to change your mind, and you need a reason to change your mind. You need you might need one more good reason to change your mind because it's hard, hard to admit you were wrong and to yourself. And um, what I believe is that the debaters who use the two minutes simply to just summarize the argument to do to say everything they've said before in the two-minute form and so in summary as i said and as i said and as i said and as i said that that's not going to be persuasive at that point because the wavering person has already heard it heard all of that there's nothing new and again just through close listening and close watching of the debaters over the years and who won and who didn't I came to the conclusion that the debates might actually be won or lost by the closing statements, that they shouldn't be throwaways. That it shouldn't be, oh, the evening's over, the, what can you possibly do in two minutes? I think the opposite. I think that that can be where you really bring the debaters, the, the audience over the line. And so um, in counseling the debaters not to just do a summary, I urge them to do something that we've seen a lot of debaters do, which is to actually come in with a really, really well-prepared, well-thought-through opening in the form of a little story, a little, like, anecdote. You know, the kind of thing you might write... it personal. Yeah. The kind of thing you might uh, write a newspaper column about. Mm. You know, an experience that you had that has a bigger meaning to it. Mm. And so... um, and I think this is what you were prodding me to get is the example that I use in these calls. It's a classic. Although I'm looking for other ones. Um, we did a debate several years back where the resolution was the world would be better off without religion. And when the time for closing statements came, we had a, a rabbi uh, who was de- defending religion. And David Wolpe. Yes. And when the when the mic passed to him, or it literally didn't pass, when he stood up to do his closing statement, he just took a beat. And that's the moment where a lot of debaters might have just done the summary of all the legal and moral and historical and political and pragmatic arguments for religion that had been made over the evening and that he had made. But he didn't do that. Instead, he told a story. So Rabbi Hugo Grin was a rabbi in England for many years, but he and his father were in Auschwitz when he was a child. And Hanukkah came around, and his father took the precious margarine ration, and instead of using it for food, he used it to light the Hanukkah candle. 
And his son protested and said, how can you do this? Don't you understand that this is food? And his father said to him, listen, my child, we have learned that you can go three weeks without eating. You can go three days without drinking, but you cannot go three minutes without hope. So Wolpe tells that story, and then he turns to the audience, and this part is verbatim. Ladies and gentlemen, if you vote for this resolution, you'll be saying the world is better off without hope. It isn't, and you shouldn't. And it was a really powerful mic drop moment in which he actually did make all of the points he'd been making all evening, all wrapped up in a little anecdote like that. And it's just a really, really good model. I don't think he won, by the way, but I still think it was a beautiful... I think it was a really, really excellent example of the kind of thing that we're talking about. Mm. And so we've seen some debaters take that advice seriously, and they and they come in with beautifully constructed mm. closings. Mm-hmm. Um, some nights we have all four debaters do it that well. Yeah. On the, the topic you just mentioned, you know, you could have the most brilliant argument, closing argument, and not win the debate. How important do you think winning and losing is in, at Intelligence Squared? To me, it's not important at all. Mm. I, I don't. I don't think that there's a gr- by which I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's important that we structure it as a competition. I think that that atmosphere raises the stakes. I think it compels the debaters to work harder. I think it gives the audience a sense of uh, participation because not only do they ask questions, but they actually are the ones who choose the winner and loser. So in that sense, I think the competition is good. But from the point of view of did the world get better or worse? Did discourse improve or fall apart because one side or the other won on that particular night? But, it is a I, but, but I also think that in the large picture, regardless of who loses every time, we get to hear at least two sides of an argument. We get to see how they are thought through. We get to see how they're tested. And just because on a given night, you know, seven members of the audience switch sides in one direction and not in the other, giving victory, you know, titular victory to one side or the other, nominal victory to one side or the other doesn't mean that the arguments don't stand and doesn't mean that those arguments aren't going to reach uh, an audience that wouldn't have heard them before. And that's, you know, the beauty of what we do by putting at least two arguments on a stage, you know, to counter the the echo chamber world that we live in. You don't get to hear two mm-hmm. arguments really on MSNBC. You don't get to hear two arguments on Fox News, which is where, you know, more and more people are gravitating. By definition, if it's a debate, at least two arguments are there, and you have to sit, even if you don't agree with it, and you hate the other side's argument, you have to sit through it. And maybe while you're doing that, maybe something will, maybe you'll notice some more merit to the argument, particularly if the debaters argue it well. So I personally don't think that there's a great deal of meaning mm-hmm. in, Especially in the, the win or lose, but and, it kills the debaters to lose. Oh, to, uh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty devastating, yeah. as we know. But also, we've been tracking now for a couple of years that, you know, we're, we're now taking votes on these debates online. So we take we capture that live audience vote. That becomes the vote that goes into the radio show and the podcast here. And, you know, you're going to see it on the video. But there is a living, breathing, ongoing vote as people discover this content or listen to it later or mm-hmm. watch it later mm-hmm. that they can vote on it months later. Yeah. And we're at the point now where we're able to see how votes change and which part of the country they're changing in. And that's kind of the evolution of some work that that's we want to publish on these topics mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because that the voting is a contested part but it's really just more of a reflection of a moment in time mm-hmm. um, when we heard what was happening with this. And these debates, as we know, are evergreen. They evolve. Yeah. I mean, that's why some of our debates, you can go back, listen to some debates we did seven, eight, nine years ago, and they're still completely relevant. 
because yeah. people want to know who won and yeah. lost. Yeah. So it's it's very functional. Um, and but you know, and internally, you know, in, behind the scenes, we've talked a lot about how to change our voting system. Um, we know that there are some flaws to the voting system, and mm-hmm. there's really no perfect voting system as right. we know. So yeah. haven't figured it out. Haven't figured it out. So still working on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this seems like a good time to go into some process questions about like our our stuff here. Mm-hmm. What do you do when things get too heated on stage? There's one debate in particular that I'm thinking of. That was a debate on, um, I believe it was um, whether the UN should recognize Palestine. I think that was the topic. As a full member state. As a full member state. Yeah. And um, one of the debaters was a former Israeli ambassador to to the to the U.S. And the other debater was a British guy who um, who's a critical a critic of uh, Israel, both Jewish. And I think the fact that they were both Jewish, like, just got under their respective skins as they were arguing with each other. They started looking at each other as traitors and and just enemies to the Jewish people in their various ways. And they and I can can actually remember what the point they were debating was, because it sort of didn't matter. But they began they began like going to each other, you know, back and forth and back and forth and starting to wave fingers and, you know, almost at the almost to the point where spittle coming out, like yeah. yelling and yelling and yelling and yelling and, and totally incomprehensible and totally not the, yeah. our mark of civil discourse. Yeah. <laughs> and I was saying, gentlemen, 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 they were ignoring me. They couldn't even hear me. They were both screaming at the same time at each other. So I, I departed my position behind the central podium and I walked around the whole set to the to where I was standing in front of them, with my back to the audience facing them. And I like to say, like, Moses raising his arms to part the Red Sea, I raised my arms. Yeah. <laughs> and I just said, you, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. And so that kind of caught them. And, um, and then I returned to my podium and I gave a little talk about... Um, not too pedantic, but a little bit of talk about, you know, we, we're not going to get anywhere if we let it go that far and let's get back to just talking with each other. And they were fine after that. And you have to do that, you know, with, with I feel like every other debate. There's kind of like a moment where things get really heated, where one side is now attacking the other side in a more personal level. Yeah, what happened, the personal attacks, I understand why people, why debaters will make a, an attack on another person's credibility or honesty. It's because they're trying to get the audience to not believe the person. And the problem with that, two problems with that, is that that's not a, what the argument is about. The argument is about the ideas that the person's espousing. The other problem with that is that if I don't step in right away and stop that, the attacked person will will in, inevitably and unavoidably have this powerful impulse to say what you just said is about me isn't true in fact i da 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 yeah defend then and defend himself and the first person will say well that's not true you said you know and so they'll end up having a side conversation for for precious minutes, and I'm always thinking of how little time we have for these mm-hmm. debates, for precious minutes, they'll have a side conversation about whether person B is the jerk the person A said or not. And it's it's a waste of our time, and it undermines the goal of civil discourse that we're trying to have. And so when I see the first glimmer of that, I, I try to step in. I've said... 
I, I know that you want to defend your reputation here. It was uh, it, it shouldn't have been raised. I, that's how I defend the person. It shouldn't have been raised in this context. So can you please not spend any time defending that charge mm -hmm. and just accept that we don't think it's relevant and move mm -hmm. on? And I think by giving the person that mm -hmm. way out, that that, that they're, they're able to move back to the conversation. And I think the audience is open-minded enough to omit those you yeah, know, I think so, those, too. Those yeah. moments as part yeah. of the actual substance of the debate. I, d I really do think our audience is a really, really critical part of the process. And I get a lot of energy and direction from them, and I can tell how it's going by checking in with them. But I also think that even people in the first time, the, I think they might think they're coming to watch a panel discussion of people arguing at each other, a la CNN or something like that. But even from the time Bob Rosencrantz and I start talking on the stage about what we're doing that night and why we're doing it, I think the audience begins to realize that they're at something that's different and it's calling upon something in their better natures to be critical thinkers and judges. And I think that they, if they see me shut somebody down for a personal attack, I think that they actually go, oh yeah, that, I'm glad that happened. That that is beside the point. And they it's get on board. With, yeah, people say yeah. it's refreshing. We yeah. don't see this because usually you just see it continue to escalate and yeah. play out. And but know. I want to be clear about one thing. I'm not against fierce argument. I'm not. Right. I I when when people are going back and forth and da 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 da. I I like to let a little of that happen because there's real energy in that, and there's also information in it. If it gets out of hand, and out of hand means they're talking at the same time and you can't hear each other. If it gets rude. Um, if it gets repetitive, mm -hmm. those are the times I'll stop in mm -hmm. and say, "All right, cool it. Let's mm -hmm. let's move on." But but I we we want to have that kind of energy as much as possible, just not in this form of personal attacks. And so right now in this moment in time, you know, we've mentioned MSNBC and Fox and CNN. We've talked a little bit about the media landscape. So do you think this model works? Uh, you know that we that we really impact the way people think about ideas. I, I really do. Yeah. Um, and this is not me saying uh, that every topic should be subjected to a two-sided debate or that a debate is the only way to really understand what a topic is about. But it is a way to understand what certain topics are about. It is a way to sort out the, the validity of one idea against another. Um, and I, I am absolutely convinced that, that people have been informed by them and have change their positions because of them or strengthen their views on something because of them. And the reason I'm sure of that is I hear it from people all the time. Um, I got an email yesterday from, from a listener to a podcast that I appeared on uh, talking about Intelligence Squared. And he said, I just, I heard the podcast on C-SPAN and I just want to thank you because you've really helped me think through a lot of debates. So let's talk about the, the debate model um, and our process. So I mean, the question I'm always asked um, after every single debate at our receptions or, you know, um, just out in the wild is how do you choose your topics? What would you say is the answer to that? So I would say that we leverage expertise from a lot of different places. So first of all, oftentimes our former debaters give us ideas mm -hmm. or point us in a, in a direction of, hey, this debate was great. Have you thought of doing it, this other thing? or this next evolution of the conversation. Mm -hmm. We also have the Intelligence Council, which we have members from, you know, almost every industry, whether it's science, technology, medicine, um, you know, law, policy. And we have a, uh, a meeting every uh, twice a year where we get together and throw out a lot of topics 
and hear from the experts leading the conversations, really doing the work, um, and kind of what the the debates are. Mm-hmm. Where is there a real dichotomy mm-hmm. in the thinking in their in their topic? Um, and then we we have a lot of debate topics that come to us from listeners and ideas from listeners. Mm-hmm. The difficulties that producing a debate is so different than a panel. You know, you it's can't, amazingly more complicated. It's so complicated. It's so nuanced. And it's really very difficult to curate a debate where there's a very clear division of yeah, thought. Yeah. And that's because a lot of topics really don't have a completely clear division where there's a 100% dichotomy of views. There's often a lot of overlap. And I would say the challenges are figuring out what's an interesting topic, figuring out is there a real argument there? Is there a clear enough divide between two sides? Are there really strong arguments on both sides? Are there people who argue those arguments who can debate? Will those people debate on a stage? Mm -hmm. Will they agree to be on a performance where they have to argue against somebody who's arguing against them? Where they could potentially lose. Where they could potentially (laughs) risk, risk losing. Will they argue the actual language that we come up with? And that's been a problem. Sometimes people will get on stage and they'll start to argue against the language that they've agreed to. It's happened a few times. Will they, can they work with a partner that we have found? Mm -hmm. Will they dignify the other side's argument by even acknowledging there's another side? Will they agree to be on a stage with somebody that they don't like who's on the other side? And all of these things I'm listing have all become things that have had to be worked through completely every single time. It's almost a five-way negotiation. Yeah, turning cats for sure. Completely, putting a debate together. So, which, so, which, I mean, I, I don't think our team gets enough, underst- the credit of, of people understanding just how profoundly difficult it is. And we're not large. Seven full-time staff putting together at least 15 of these debates yeah, a year. Yeah, 20 now, yes, plus yeah. a, you know, extra podcast episodes and, it's, you know, other advocacy yeah. work that we're doing. It's and, normally yeah. brain labor intensive, Yeah, which is the, which is why it's a kind of a great job, too. It's, it's really fascinating. I mean, all this talking to these experts and reading into all of these topics and knowing these things, and then it all turns into a show yeah. on a stage with lights and cameras in action. That's a pretty good job. But, um, but yeah, it's I mean, really, I don't think people get because we make it look so easy. Well, we're so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Clea, I think um, we've shared a lot of secrets. We've shared a lot of... Uh, we've, we've looked under the hood. Yeah. Yes. I hope our listeners, um, d- that the mystery's not been dispelled, that you'll still come back, and I think you will. We're going to have a fantastic <laughs> season coming up. Um, we're going to be taking on topics like nuclear power this coming season. We're going to be looking at the Electoral College Finally. Finally. We've been talking about that for years, the two-party system. Yeah. So, Um, um, and a lot more. So, thanks for uh, a great conversation. Thank you, John. From Inside the Walls. I've been in your ear for so many years, (laughs) but not not in the studio. And now it's it's face-to-face. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Clay. One (laughs) more time. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time.